Amen. Well, we are so grateful that you are here this morning. I just want to say thank you to Roy and his team real fast for, for leading us every single week. This was an incredible week of worship. Yeah. This is one of those teams that uh, more often than not, they probably hear from us the things that... Uh, that uh, maybe we, we don't like about things, and they're a team that needs to hear from us the things that we love about them, because they are an awesome, awesome team of folks, and they do an incredible job every single week, and so thank you, Roy. Thank you for the worship team, for, for all you guys do. Well, we will be in the book of Genesis this morning, Genesis chapter 49. As you're turning there, I want to I take a real quick poll, uh, show of hands, who has ever heard of an entire sermon on Genesis chapter 49? Anybody in the room? Oh, good. So we're all going to check this off our bucket list together. All right, Good. So uh, Genesis chapter 49, one thing that I've loved about this Genesis series is we have taken time every single week to study every verse and every chapter, and by the time we're done with this, in, in just a few short weeks, like we're, we're, there's only one more chapter left, so we're so, so close, but by the time we're done, we'll, we will be able to say that we walk through all of these together, and uh, we were just talking about this this week, Pastor Travis and myself. We were talking about some of these, you're so tempted to just kind of skip over and you don't hear many people preach on them, but some of the ones that we've, we've taught on that you rarely hear have been some of the, the most incredible ones and, and the most challenging ones, uh, like Judah and Tamar on Valentine's Day, you know, like things like that. So um, it's, it's been an incredible study, but I'm so grateful that we haven't skipped any, right? And so that we're going right through these. And this is another example of a text that is very difficult to even find a another uh, pastor who's even preached on these verses, but yet they're so uh, crucial and so critical to the Word of God. So this morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 49. We're going to see Jacob blessing his sons. And so if, if you're brand new with this this morning, or maybe you haven't uh, been here in a couple weeks, let me catch you up to speed. I'm going to go back to last week, and then I'll catch us up to the other six. So last week, we studied Genesis chapter 48, and in Genesis chapter 48, a couple of things have changed in our narrative, right? So Israel, as we know him, also know him as Jacob, he's now living in Egypt. God tells him, it is good for you to go to Egypt. That's part of my plan. I'm going to use Egypt uh, to to save my people, so go down there. And the Bible tells us that they had spent 17 years in the land of Egypt. And at the end of those 17 years, Jacob is 147 years old, and the Bible tells us that he has drawn near to the end of his life. So in Genesis chapter 48, what he does is he begins uh, to tell the important things that he needs to to his son. So he's passing on blessing. Uh, he's also letting them know what it is um, that they receive in their inheritance from him. So some very important verses in these in these. Uh, Stories here in the, in the book of Genesis. So Genesis chapter 48, he brings in Joseph. So he starts with Joseph, and we know that by blessing Joseph, he actually blesses Joseph through his two sons. So Joseph gets firstborn inheritance. He gets a double portion. And so Jacob blesses Ephraim and Manasseh, and that's how we understand how Ephraim and Manasseh become part of the tribes of Israel. Jacob adopts them as his own sons, and they, they receive equal inheritance to his, his sons. So these were grandsons that are getting equal inheritance to sons. 
So that's kind of what was happening in Genesis chapter 48. Genesis chapter 49, what we're going to see this morning, is a continuation of that blessing. So now Jacob is going to invite in the rest of his boys, and he's going to share with them uh, their blessing and their inheritance. And there's a couple things that are uh, very unique about this chapter. First, this is one of the first sections of poetry that we find in the book of the Bible, right? And so uh, this, is a, this is a poem, and in this a couple of things to keep in mind. It's very interesting how uh, Jacob structures this. So he's going to bring in the boys and he's going to bless them. But he's not going to bless them in their birth order. He's going to bless them based upon who their mother was. And so he's going to bring in Leah's sons first. And then he's going to bless the boys of Bilhah and Zilpah. And then he's going to save Rachel's boys for last. And so as we work through this, you might see some names a little bit out of order. But that's what's going on here. So I just wanted to set that for you. It's, it's, it's a lot to do with poetry and, and not always in the order in which they're born, but he, he covers all the boys in this passage of Scripture. So it's, it's, it's fabulous. It's a wonderful um, a passage of Scripture that we're covering. Honestly, um, I really geeked out about this this week. This is one of those passages as you're, you're studying through it, you can get lost like on all kinds of rabbit trails and stuff. And so let me just say from the outset, we will not have time to take a deep dive into all of these things. But if you are looking for a really um, fabulous study, an intriguing study, go back on your own and look these things up and see how God fulfills these prophecies that, that are going to be coming from Jacob today. So those are the big things that you need to know. It's a poem. They're not necessarily in birth order. They're based on who their mother is. And the, and the third and biggest thing is this is all prophetic. So Jacob is going to be dealing with the boys that are standing in front of him. But there's also a component to his blessing that is going to be about the tribes or their descendants in the future. So very prophetic in nature. So let me read the first two verses here as we jump into this Genesis chapter 49. It says in verse 1, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Join me in prayer this morning. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. God, I ask that this morning as we walk through this text, God, that you would use it to challenge us. Because we're going to see here this morning, there's a lot going on in this text, God. And it's so critical to our understanding of your word and who you are, God. And so I pray that you would use it to, to challenge us this morning, God. I pray that whatever you ask us to do today at the end of this sermon, that, God, you would give us the boldness to act on it, God. I pray that you would use this to... Bring things to our attention, God. Challenge us in very unique ways, God. Where I'm going to be general, you be specific in the lives of all the people in this room. And God, I pray that you would speak through me. Give me your words, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to continue reading Genesis chapter 49, starting in verse 3 and 4. We're going to see... Reuben's blessing here. So in verse 3, it says, Reuben. So Reuben's the firstborn. You are my firstborn, my might, and my first fruits of my strength. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Okay, so let me pause here for a second. At this point, you're, you're probably thinking, man, along with Reuben, like, hey, things are going pretty well, right? Like, if you remember, Reuben's had a little bit of an estranged relationship with his dad because of some things that have happened in his past. And when, when he steps forward, his first 
firstborn. Jacob says, Reuben, step up. It's time for you to receive your blessing. And then he goes through and describes him in this way. He says that you're my firstborn, my might, the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. So you know in this moment, Reuben's thinking, man, this is going really well, right? This is going way better than I expected it to. Dad, man, he, he seems pretty high on me right now. But then verse 4 comes. Jacob immediately changes it to unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. Ever been talking to somebody about uh, their will? We've talked to that through with several family members before. And it's like one of those things where like you see like it's almost as if Jacob's gone back. Like he's had this written out before and he's had to go back and make some edits, right? And so it started out with you're my firstborn, you're my strength, you're my might. And then he had to go back later on and, and add an asterisk and put in there, unstable as water. You will no longer have preeminence. It's like Jacob went into the wheel and was like, all right, Reuben scratched off, Okay. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like some of you are like, I know exactly what you're talking about. There's some family members in my will that are like Reuben right now. So um, kind of crazy, but that's what we see. So he says, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. So what is it that's happened? Well, Jacob gives an answer. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Now remember, this blessing is coming in front of all of his brothers and the entire family. Everybody is assembled here to hear this. And, and what started out as a really good thing for Reuben has gotten very awkward very quickly, right? So, so Jacob, in front of everybody, called Reuben out and said, you've lost your opportunity for preeminence. You've been stripped of your rights as firstborn. Why? Because of something that you did back in your past. Now, that thing that Jacob is referencing, we know from Genesis chapter 35, verse 22. It says, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Billah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. So it's, it's even more egregious than just uh, participating in this act with this woman who belonged to your father. But the whole idea here is this would have never taken place while your father was still alive. So Reuben, in doing this, was basically saying, like, I'm in charge now. I don't care if dad's still alive or anything about dad. So he, it was kind of a, a double whammy in this sense. And so because he did that in his past, Jacob is telling him that you have now forfeited your double portion blessing. And you will not be preeminent. You will no longer have leadership. Now, this is incredible to think. Remember, as we go through these, there's, there's a direct uh, blessing to the sons, but there's also implications for, for future generations to come. So in his prophetic word, this is about Reuben, but it's also about the tribe of Reuben. So in the future, if we look forward in Scripture, you'll notice something if you go through the Bible. When Jacob said that you no longer have preeminence, you no longer have any leadership, you've been stripped of all of your title as firstborn, he was not playing around. You can check the Bible. No prophet, no priest, no judge, and no king comes from the tribe of Reuben. Absolutely no leadership. For the rest of, of all of God's story. Why? Because of something that Reuben had done many years ago. And this is the blessing he receives. We'll come back to this full circle here in a little bit of how this is actually a blessing. Because it doesn't feel like a blessing. If you put yourself in Reuben's shoes, you're going, okay, dad, this was weird. Okay? And then he's like, okay, in ver after verse 4, he just moves on. So Reuben sits down. That's your blessing, son. 
you will not be preeminent because you went up to my bed. Let's look at verses 5 through 7. So then Jacob calls for Simeon and Levi. And he says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. And the reason why Simeon and Levi received their blessing together is because they committed egregious acts together and so that's why he's saying when he says you're brothers of course you're biological brothers but that's not what he means he means you're brothers in the sense that you're like the same person you guys are always doing these things together so Simeon and Levi are brothers weapons of violence are their swords their company for their anger they killed men and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen cursed be their anger for it is fierce and their wrath for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and I will scatter them in Israel. Again, same thing is true for Simeon and Levi. Because of something that they had done previously, they are now receiving the, 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 the blessing from their father in this way. Because of something they had done in their past, Jacob is saying that you have lost something in your future. Now, what was it that Simeon and Levi did? Well, if you guys remember back earlier in, in the book of Genesis, their sister Dinah is defiled, and their response to the guys who do it in Shechem is, is they tricked him, right? They tell him, you can marry our sister, but if you're going to marry them, then everybody must be circumcised. And once everybody was circumcised, the Bible tells us that on the third day, they went in and they slaughtered everyone there. And that's what Jacob is, is saying. Like, you are so cruel. You are so angry. Because of these things, let not my soul come into your counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. He's saying, because of what you've done, you're forfeiting something in the future. Look at verse 7. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in, aid, uh, in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. What does he mean here? Because of what you've done in the past, here's what I'm going to do in the future. This is what he's prophesying over you, that you will be scattered amongst the people. And this is important because these come true just like the, the prophecy with Reuben. You see, you can go out all throughout the rest of Scripture and look this up. You'll find out that Simeon, Simeon, the tribe of Simeon, never actually uh, comes to any full potential. They, they live most of their lives scattered in Judah. If you'll remember, later on the book of, uh, in the Scripture, it, they're in Judah, in cities kind of scattered all over the place. They never really have any uh, major things to themselves. And then he also says the same thing uh, for, for Levi. And we'll come back to that in a second. But we know that God's ultimate plan for Levi is that they also have no land inheritance. They will be scattered amongst Israel. In fact, the tribe of Levi will be, not get any land inheritance whatsoever, but be divided up in all the different cities. All right? So up to this point, Jacob's blessings for these first three boys actually come by way of anti blessings and we'll come back to those in just a second so then look at verse 8 so then he really shifts gears here he gets to judah all right judah come come up here and then he says judah your brothers shall praise you your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies your father's sons shall bow down before you judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? So now it's Judah's turn. And at this point, you can imagine Judah is probably like, oh, my goodness. I don't want to go up here at all because so far these blessings have been really awkward and really strange, right? And Judah, in the back of his mind, you know somewhere, Judah's thinking about our Valentine's Day message, right? He's like, oh, my gosh. 
like that whole thing with Tamar and like dad knows and oh, this is going to be bad. And so he steps forward and what does he get? Instead of getting that, he gets the opposite too. So just like the other brothers got what they weren't expecting, Judah in this sense gets what he's not expecting either. By, by Jacob saying that your brother shall praise you, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Judah, you're like a lion's cub. What is he talking about here? He's saying that the prophecy and the blessing that you will receive is one of uh, power and conquest. Right? Of power and conquest. He's saying, Judah, your brothers are going to praise you. You're going to be a leader amongst your brothers. They're going to bow down before you. You're like a lion's cub. This is where the whole idea of Jesus Christ coming. He's known as what? The lion of the tribe of Judah. That's the imagery here of Judah. Everything that Judah represents is of power and of conquest. And we see here in verse 10, he even goes a step further. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. What's he talking about here about scepter? He's like, not only are you going to be known for power and conquest, but Judah, our kings are going to come from you. From your line will our kings be known. And this is very interesting because we know in Scripture that this is fulfilled ultimately by Jesus Christ, but it's also fulfilled by King David. Right? And this is very interesting to think about too. This is his prophecy coming straight from God that puts con- in context later on when we get why was Saul not God's man? Because God prophesied through Jacob right here in Genesis that my kings will come through Judah. And the first king of Israel is from what tribe? This is homework like last week. Benjamin. That's right. The people chose the king that they wanted from the tribe that that they wanted. Why? Because because they looked at the outside, the Bible says. And God said right here in Genesis, my king shall come through the tribe of Judah. So so it was was double against God. God already prophesied it. We're going to do our own thing, and we're not going to choose God's man. We're going to choose the guy that we want. So they picked Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. We know that ultimately God corrects that and brings us back in alignment with his own prophecy from here in Genesis when he ushers in King David to take the place of King Saul. And ultimately, like I said, this is fulfilled through Jesus Christ himself. The ultimate king of kings and the Lord of lords would come via the tribe of Judah and fulfill God's prophecy right here in Genesis 49, verse 10. Let's continue because he continues on with Judah. Judah's blessing continues, verse 11 and 12. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he, was, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth are whiter than milk. What in the world is this talking about? So not only, Judah, are you going to be preeminent in power and conquest, and kings are going to come from you, but you are going to experience unbelievable blessing and prosperity that comes from God himself. That's what the imagery is here. It says, uh, when you go back to verse 11, it says, Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. What, What does that mean? What he's saying there is you're going, to be, you're going to have so much abundance that you're going to be able to tie your donkeys off to your grapevines, right? And why is that important? It's important because you would never, ever do that unless you just had an unbelievable amount of grapevines, right? Because what happens if you tie an animal off to the grapevines, particularly a donkey? They're going to eat 
everything on the grapevines, right? If not, rip the grapevines completely out of the ground. So the imagery here is you're going to have such overwhelming blessing. It's like you could tie your donkeys off to your grapevines. They can eat it all and it won't matter. They can rip it up and tear it up and it won't matter because that's how much you're going to be blessed. In fact, you're going to be so blessed, it says, you're going to be so blessed, excuse me, I turned the wrong direction, don't you hate when you do that, that you're going to be able to wash your garments in wine and vestures in the blood of grapes. Like that would never happen. Like you, why would you waste your wine by doing these tasks that it wasn't even meant for. And that's the imagery again. It's so abundant. His eyes are darker than wine. His teeth are whiter than milk. The wine and the milk both represent prosperity and blessing. He's saying like you're going to be drinking so much milk that your teeth are going to be white from it. So you're going to have preeminence in power and conquest. My kings are going to come from you and you're going to experience unbelievable blessing and we're going to see that fulfilled through David and ultimately even his son Solomon. Right? Solomon, according to scripture, we still believe that he was probably the most wealthy person that's ever lived. So God is accomplishing these prophecies throughout the book of of, of scripture here. Let's turn our attention now to verse 13 through 15. So these are the last two sons of Leah. Zebulun shall dwell in the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. And this is very interesting. This is one of the first things that so far we followed birth order until we got here. Leah's next two sons, Zebulun is the younger brother and Issachar is the older. And we know throughout this whole book of Genesis that God oftentimes switches their preeminence based upon things that they've done. That's exactly what happens here. He says, Zebulun, you shall dwell by the shore of the sea. You shall be a haven for ships, and his borders shall be sidened. So we know that ultimately Zebulun is uh, in a pretty good situation throughout their history. They're positioned up between the Mediterranean Sea. This is the, uh, in the northwest, the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee, right? So, so basically they're in a position of prosperity there because you're going to be sustained by, by both of these bodies of water. And then he says, but as far as Issachar is concerned... You're going to come second to your younger brother Zebulun. And why? Because you're a strong donkey, but you've crouched between the sheepfolds. And you saw that the resting place was good. God is prophesying here that Issachar, you're going to have less than your brother Zebulun because of choices that you're going to make. You're a strong donkey, but in your laziness, you're going to lay down in a good resting place that you find. And we know throughout the book of scripture again that that that's in fact what happens Issachar is always dominated by Canaanites in the land they can never fully get them away and it's because the Bible is saying because you are choosing to not do what you're supposed to do you're laying down and in your laziness you will become a servant at forced labor okay remember all of this is 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 Imagery of things to come and prophecy of things to come as well. All right, so look at verses 16 through 21. Got to pick this up a little bit. 16 through 21, we see the blessings of the son of Billa and Zilpah. And this is powerful. It shows us, remember, this prophecy isn't just coming from Jacob. This prophecy is coming from God via Jacob. And this is important for us to see because it shows us the heart of God in this. Because these are sons of concubines. 
If you know anything about Scripture, there, there is no precedence in Scripture for concubine sons having to inherit like their other sons. And so this shows us the heart of God in this whole matter, that God is including the sons of Billah and Zilpah in this, just like the sons of Leah and Rachel. And he says, so step forward, here's your blessing. So he starts with Dan. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. And Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that his rider falls backwards. What we know about Dan, like it says, you will judge your people. One of the most, uh, most well-known judges in the book of Judges comes from the tribe of Dan. Anybody know his name? It's like a pop quiz today, the last two weeks. You guys never know. Somebody's like, say Samson. It is Samson. Good job. It's Samson. So from Samson, we see um, from the tribe of Dan. So you see fulfillment. Not only is he a judge, but it also shows you here when it talks about Dan that you'll be a serpent in the way, a viper in the path that bites the horse's heel so that its rider falls backwards. It talks about the fact that though small, Dan would be used to judge God's people and protect them. They were, they were um, unbelievably fierce when it came to battle, and that's what we know about Samson. So we see in Judges chapter 15, Samson single-handedly takes the jawbone of a donkey, right, and he kills a thousand Philistines. Philistines in one afternoon. That's a lot, right? Like, that, that's a lot. Like, you versus like two guys would be a lot. We would be proud of you for overcoming them. But like, you versus a thousand, that's, that's quite a bit. It's quite a bit of guys, and so that's what it's talking about. It's like this unbelievable might. So Dan, the tribe itself, is relatively small, but just because they're small doesn't mean that they're not powerful and that God isn't using them in incredible ways. And so when it says you'll be a judge, ultimately fulfilled here uh, through Samson. Then we get to uh, Gad, verse 19. Raiders shall raid Gad. But he shall raid at their hills. We don't know a great deal about Gad, but we do know that this ultimately is fulfilled. While while Gad lives in the promised land, they're constantly raided against. But but again, they're known as a fierce uh, warrior tribe because they're constantly having to retake lost ground. And so that's all we get for Gad. Gad, there's your blessing. Then we get to Asher. Asher's food shall be rich and he shall yield royal delicacies. And then that's all Asher gets, but that's pretty good because who doesn't want to be around people with good food? Um, And then verse 21, Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. So what we know about Naphtali is they're, they're a very, um, of, of all the tribes, they're the most of their, their selves, right? Like, so that's kind of the imagery here. You're a doe that's let loose. Um, so they spend the majority of their time kind of in the north apart from everybody else, kind of doing their own thing a little bit. In fact, another not so well-known thing is, is Jesus spends a great deal of his time in the New Testament in this Galilean region that comes where Naphtali is from. Okay, so we get to verse 22. So we switch to Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. So it talks about how how fruitful he's going to be. Remember, Ephraim is going to be one of the the largest tribes in all of Israel. And so that's what he's talking about. You're going to be so fruitful, it's like vines uh, overtaking a wall. And that's very interesting, too, because he comes from a mother that was barren. So from barren Rachel, God is going to provide unbelievable amounts of 
people. It's, it's going to be incredibly fruitful. So it goes on, verse 23. Their archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is a shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of our Father, who will help you? By the Almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep, that crouches beneath blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. So that's a lot just to say that, listen, Ephraim and Nasa, you're going to be blessed. And you're going to be taken care of because God set Joseph apart as the, as the firstborn, the, the recipient of the double portion. Then we get to verse 27, and this is powerful for us to remember. It's evidence that this isn't just coming from Jacob, because if you read this, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Benjamin is one of his favorite sons, okay? And what Benjamin receives is rather odd in his blessing. So it just demonstrates for us further that this isn't Jacob's desire for his sons, but this is Jacob's prophecy over them about things that will come to pass. And we see in verse 27... Jacob says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. And at first you read that and you're like, what in the world is that all about? We know from scripture that, that Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin would be the most uh, battle ready of, of all the tribes in Israel. In fact, you can go look this up. I don't have time to explain the whole thing, but go and read Judges chapter 19 and 20. Okay, what happens in the book of Judges is an unbelievable atrocity takes place and it requires all of the rest of Israel to gather their battle-ready men and go to war against Benjamin. It's an unbelievably hard thing to read because you see all the rest of God's people at God's instruction to go and wipe Benjamin off the face of the earth because he's turned his back on God. The tribe has turned their back on God. In Judges chapter 20, we see that 20, I think it's about 27. I, I don't know if I have my, my number exactly right here. 26, excuse me, 26,000 Benjamites. The Bible describes them as all left-handed and so good at throwing a stone that they could throw it at a hair and not miss. So it's trying to show us that of all the tribes, the one you don't mess with is Benjamin. They're like ravenous wolves. And in this moment, there's a civil war going on between all the rest of Israel. 400,000 battle-ready men go up against 26,000 Benjamites. And on the first day, Israelites lose 22,000 men. That's how fierce the Benjamites are at, at war. They go out the second day and 18,000 Israelites die on the second day. And the Benjamites are still holding strong. And God says to them on the third day, I am going to deliver Benjamin into your hands this day. And it's not until God intercedes on behalf of Israel that they're able to come in and take care of this situation. But all that just to say is when it says that Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, they are fierce and unbelievably mighty when it came to battle. And that's why it took so many Israelites and God's help to be able to Take them out in that situation. So all of this, again, see as, as blessing to the boy that's standing in front of him, but ultimately prophecy to generations to come. And then we see in these words, 
Jacob's death and burial. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that's in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that's in the field of Machpelah, in the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There he buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there we bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And this is what I want. Before we leave this morning, this is what I want to challenge us with from this text. If you look here at verse 28, this jumped out to me this week as I was studying this. It says that when he blessed them, he the blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. All right? Jacob blessed each son with the blessing that was suitable to him. And so there was three major, major application things this week as I studied this that just kind of jumped off the page to me. And I want to share with you guys before we leave here together this morning. So the first thing that we see in application. So what, is this, what does it matter for us today? Like what's this whole story about? Remember, Number one, what we do today matters tomorrow. Okay? For application for us, just like these boys, as we saw time and time and time again in this passage, we're reminded that what we do today matters tomorrow. Our decisions, our actions, our successes, and our failures, they all matter. We see in the text that the actions and decisions of these boys mattered not only for themselves in this life, but even for future generations to come. And for some of these things, they probably seemed fairly inconsequential in the moment, but they found out later on that they were, in fact, very consequential. Because of their actions, because of the things that they'd done, there was a result that happened later on in their life. So it's a powerful reminder us, same thing for us today, that what I do today matters tomorrow. Okay? And for a lot of us in this room, we, we see that play itself out um, in, in both positive and negative ways, right? And we know that to be true. And there's certain elements of our life or certain areas of our life that it makes more sense. You know, like take, take all of us in the room, like in, in, your, in your career or in your job. You know that to be true. It's the whole idea of like what, what you sow, you're going to reap, right? You reap what you sow. What I do today, tomorrow is going to impact uh, or what I do today, excuse me, is going to impact my tomorrow. And like I said, some areas of our life it's easier to see. Like career and job. I know that what I do today is going to have a serious impact on tomorrow, right? I think we mostly all see that. If I sleep at work, what am I going to reap tomorrow? A new job. That's what I'm going to reap tomorrow, right? Or the opportunity to find new employment, however you want to say it. But you see that what you do today matters tomorrow. The same thing is true even in the positive light. You flip that around. You know that if you put in the time, you put in the work, you put in the effort, you're the first one there, you're the last one to leave, you start to catch the attention of your bosses, right? And ultimately what happens most of the time is that you receive a blessing for that in a positive sense, just like we know that we receive it in a negative sense. And there's a lot of areas in our life that we see this and we, when we see it so clearly, we understand it so, so much better. I even think of like sports, 
You know, you think of sports, not even just for you, but even for your children, right? Like as dads, we're like, you know, we see the direct result of putting in the time necessary today to make our kids better tomorrow, right? And it's that whole idea, you will reap what you sow. And so we so easily see the benefits of those things in certain areas of our life. Other areas, not so much. Other areas, not so much. I feel like the one area that God, a couple areas that God challenged me directly with this week was mostly in my home. In my home. The, the spiritual consequences of this, of this idea that what I do today matters tomorrow in my home. Let me just challenge you, moms and dads, you are making disciples one way or the other, you are making disciples, and what you do today will matter for tomorrow. So be very careful what you spend the majority of your time doing. Like I said, we so easily see it in these other things, but we don't always see the direct correlation in our kids' spiritual lives, right? Like I know if I want my son to be really good at baseball, like I help him to be good at baseball, and I get him on the best teams, and I take him to batting practice, and I do all of these things, and there's a lot of men in this room, and even a lot of moms in this room that are guilty of this. We're willing to do whatever it takes to get our kids really good at a bunch of stuff that doesn't matter. But we fail to recognize that the same thing is true for their spiritual lives. It's a powerful reminder this week for me. What I do today is going to matter for tomorrow. Like, listen, I want to raise up spiritual warriors in my home. And I know that you do too. But listen, mom and dad, it is very difficult to take your kids to a place that you've never been yourself. Very difficult to take your kids to a place that you've never been yourself. If your desire is to be a spiritual or raise spiritual warriors, you cannot be a spiritual wimp. Spiritual wimps don't raise spiritual warriors. Spiritual warriors raise spiritual warriors because you're doing today something that's going to impact tomorrow. And this is important for us to understand because it does matter. What we do today matters for tomorrow. Same thing for our marriages. And our relationship with our wives. And all the things that play themselves at home. Boy, I pray that God would help me to be just as committed to these areas of my life as I am all these other things. Be the spiritual leader in your home, dad. Grandfathers, spiritual leaders in your home. Be willing to do for your children spiritually what you're willing to do for their athletics. You'll coach all their teams, but you won't pray with them. Or the same thing with their band. Same thing with your wives. Be the spiritual leaders in your home and remind yourself every single day that what you do today matters tomorrow. And let me just throw out as a word of encouragement, this is also true in the positive sense. So there's a lot of people in this room that are doing the right things. And you're wondering, God, is, is this getting, getting us anywhere? Am I just spinning my wheels? And let me just encourage you with the next generations, with your children and your grandchildren, do not grow weary in well-doing. Because what you're doing today will matter later. And it may not show itself tomorrow, but it will show itself down the road. I know my parents were probably wondering that about me. And finally one day I called them. I'm like, listen, I need to apologize for everything. You might have done the same thing. But I appreciate you never giving up. 
you know, one of the things I love about my mom and dad more than anything is when times that we didn't feel like coming to church, we had a, we had a zero tolerance po- policy about missing church. I don't care if you're tired. We don't care about nothing because we want you in there because they knew that what they were doing today mattered for tomorrow. And we've got a whole bunch of people that are wondering, why in the world do my children not want anything to do with the church? And what we've demonstrated for them is an entire lifetime of we'll go to church as long as there's nothing getting in the way. And so anyways, the first challenge here just wrecked me this week was remembering that what we do today matters for tomorrow. All these boys learned this lesson. Number two, real fast. Discipline and consequences are never fun, but they are good. Discipline and consequences are never fun, but they are good. Let me read for you Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 11. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have an earthly father who disciplines us and we respected them. Shall we not much more subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Remember, discipline and consequence are never fun, but they are good. In this case, even Reuben and Simeon and Levi, your blessing is an anti-blessing, but it's ultimately for your good. You don't like what I have to say here today, but it's for your good, and ultimately it's for the good of all of God's people. Because God stepped in and said, listen, Reuben, your character doesn't match your leadership level. You've been demoted. Because I cannot have an unstable, lazy leader at the helm of all of my people. So God's discipline in that moment actually turned out for the good of Reuben and the good of all of his people. Same thing is true for uh, Simeon and Levi. I cannot let you subject all of my people to your anger and your cruelty. You've been moved out of the way. So their anti-blessing becomes a blessing because in God's discipline, they're they're treated as sons and, and it's ultimately for their good. Let me just say this before we move on. The difference between God's discipline and punishment and judgment is the end result. The end result is God's intention to make us better and more mature and not intending us to put us out of the family. Does that make sense? So the difference between punishment and judgment and discipline is the end result. God isn't looking just to punish us and judge us. God doesn't wake up, you know, he doesn't get up every day going, man, what can I do to mess with Jeremy? How can I ruin his life today? No. That's not it at all. But he disciplines me because the result, the end result that he wants for my life is to make me better and more like him and more mature in Christ. So discipline and consequence are never fun, but they are good. Third, or last but not least, and I don't need that water anyway, so. <laughs> Number three, God offers redemption and restoration in the midst of our brokenness. This is the most important part of the day because we've talked a lot about some negative things and some things that we've all done and then God's discipline in our lives. But here's the best part. The best part is that God ultimately provides us with redemption and restoration in the midst of our brokenness. He takes our messes and he makes them into masterpieces. We've been talking about this since the beginning of the book of Genesis. We see it over and over again. Just a couple from this passage real fast. 
Again, we mentioned the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. They were Jacob's sons as an act of sin. They should have never even been there, but God comes in and he makes a masterpiece out of a mess. And he offers redemption and restoration. Same thing we can see with Reuben. Reuben, you'll be no leader, but guess what? You're still a part of God's story. You know that Reuben is still a tribe? You know that that Reuben is still eligible for the forgiveness of sins? Just like everyone else? You may be no leader, but God still provides redemption and restoration in that. Levi, you've been scattered amongst Israel because you're cruel and you're angry. But you know what? You can fast forward to Exodus chapter 32. Moses comes down from the mountain and he finds all the people in Israel worshiping the golden calf except for who? The people of the tribe of Levi. And Moses says, stand by my side and take up your sword. And because of that action, God brings them back into the fold and says, you will do my work for the rest of this story. So the Levites become servants to the priests, and the priestly line comes from Levi. And so you see God bringing about redemption and restoration through these broken stories. Levi thought, man, I've, I've messed up. No hope for me. And God said, not so fast. It's never too late to start doing the right thing. And God brings them right back in and provides them with unbelievable blessing. And then ultimately, Judah, we had mentioned this earlier, would bring about the kings of Israel. Where Jesus Christ himself would come from. And this is the craziest part. God doesn't just work in Judah's sin. God uses that sin, wrap your minds around this for a second, to bring about the family that would lead to Jesus Christ. So not only does he allow Judah to still take part in what he's doing, but he uses the act itself with Tamar to bring about the line of Jesus. You talk about God taking a mess and a broken situation and turning into a masterpiece, his greatest of all masterpieces. It's what led to Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture to us that God offers redemption and restoration in the midst of our brokenness. So that's where I want to leave us today, is with those three challenges. And this is an opportunity. We're going to take a a moment just right now to to respond to today's message. And I don't know where each person is in this room, but I'm sure that somebody needed to hear one of these things somewhere that we talked about. Like I always pray, I pray that God would be specific in your life where I've been general. And then this, and like I said, I don't know where you've been, but maybe for some of you, maybe for some of you, the challenge today was just to remember that what you're doing today matters for tomorrow. And for some of you, you need to be encouraged because you are doing the right thing and God sees you and God will bless what you're doing. Some of you, though, need to take pause and you need to consider the things that you're doing or maybe some of the things that you're not doing and and make that a determination today that God I'm, I'm going to start doing what you've called me to do for some of you dads husbands God's just reminding you you need to start being the spiritual leader in your home to start doing the things that he's called you to do and to remind yourself that what you're doing today matters and sometimes it's just in your individual actions set a good example to your, your kids and your wife do the right thing 
in every situation that you find yourself in. For some of you, you just need to remember that maybe you're in the middle of, of, of some not fun things and be reminded that God ultimately uses discipline and consequence in our lives to make us more like him. It's for your good. He's conforming you into the image of his son. And his goal for you is to be more mature. And then for some of you in here, you just need to be reminded that if you've already been there, you've already failed, you've already messed up, listen, it's never too late to start doing the right thing. God offers redemption and restoration to every single person. For some of you, it starts with a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate act of redemption and restoration. Jesus dies on the cross for your sin so that you can be brought back in right relationship with God the Father. So I'm gonna pray. This will be your time to respond. Father, we pray and thank you for all that you've done. God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the powerful reminders. We study Jacob and his sons, God, and the blessings they received and some of them, the the blessings that they didn't receive. And, And God, I just pray that you'd use this morning as a challenge to every single person in this room. God, help us to be courageous, to step out and do whatever you're asking us to do right here in this moment. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.